0: Well, don't we have a wonderful band? Telling you what, let's give them a round of applause, all right? And and after you do that, uh, take uh, your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter one. We look at the very first book of the Bible about something that um, is really, um, should be near to our hearts and something we hear about a lot, and that is vision. Before we get into the Word of God, though, I'd like to say that in a couple of weeks, we are going to come back with kind of a phase two. Of our church. Now, I know that when we opened up everything for uh, uh, live worship for you to come, we didn't urge you to come. We let you come, you, you know, you were coming at your own pace. And we were wanting to make sure before we got a, a bigger crowd that we have all the safety measures in place and they are actually practically working. And we believe that they are. You can come here. You know, a lot of um, churches, for example, and just a few anyway, said that they're not going to have services for. Uh, until the end of the year, or maybe the first of next year. And those churches basically are maxed out during their worship hour. They have maybe smaller sanctuaries, or maybe even uh, real big sanctuaries, but they just fill it up every time. There's no way for them to divide up those services to make social distancing uh, possible. But with our church, 2,700-seat auditorium Get about 800 people in here, and then we'll go to overflow, so we can handle that. You can sit there with your your mask on, or you, if you don't want to do that, you can sit over maybe in the nosebleed section, somewhere nobody else is sitting, and just sort of be by yourself, or at least your family, kind of by yourself. So we we cannot, of course, guarantee uh, anybody's safety. You know, nobody can. You can't go in the grocery store and do that, or the drugstore, or going to school but we're doing all the things that we need to do in order to make you safe. And so we have that set up for you. In two weeks, we're gonna have children coming back and uh, preschoolers coming back for that one hour. And so we're gonna ask people to come for one hour and then meet. Uh, You can meet on campus if you want. Won't be childcare, but you can meet on campus for your small group. But that, uh, the full-fledged schedule on Sunday which is so important, is going to come back probably sometime in the middle of September. trying to be fluid by that. And so what we want to do, we've taken away uh, all the, I think, the reasons, the practical reasons why most people should not come. Uh, If you feel so led after you prayed about it because of people in your house or because of your health risks, and I'm speaking mainly to those, I guess, that are at home, uh, then, of course, we understand that for sure but let's, uh, let's pray about it and make sure that that's uh, uh, what we need to do because uh, the Bible says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but even more as you see the day drawing near. So it does make a difference that you're here getting to know people, having live worship, live preaching. And so with that um, little, uh, little speech, let's take the Bible. The vision. I was... Uh, I'm really, in fact, one of the leadership lessons that we're going to be looking at on Wednesday nights online is about vision because people talk about it all the time. In fact, there's there's always kind of some pressure uh, built up, especially among pastors. You know, what's your vision for the church? I know that almost everyone that has searched or gone before a search committee and they've asked the question, "Well, if you come to our church, what's the vision for your church?" And that's so difficult to answer because you've never been to the church. You don't know the people of the church. And so what is that kind of thing all about? I remember reading a story of David Wilkerson, uh, famous for the book and the movie Crossing the Switchblade. David Wilkerson, back in the 1950s, was a pastor in the Midwest, and he was kind of pacing up and down his office, and as we do sometimes, and uh, trying to figure out, hey, what am I going to preach this Sunday, kind of struggling with the message. And uh, he, he picked up this magazine, I think it was a Time magazine. He picked it up and there was a picture on the front of some gang, two or three gang members from New York City. And they had been arrested for killing someone. And he just looked at it and said, wow, man, that's really bad. And he put it down and he came back to it. He couldn't couldn't get away from it. He's drawn to it. He read the article and God, through that picture and through that article, really placed a burden on his heart. For the young teenagers in New York City. Within a few months. Things changed about his life. Circumstances were brought to bear. Where he picked up his family. And moved them completely from the Midwest. To the heart of New York City. To minister to these gangs. It came, to, came about. Thousands were saved. Because of his ministry. Not only that. But about those thousands reached tens of thousands. All throughout the world. Because of that ministry. Because he had a vision, he was open, he had a vision from the Lord, and he went about fulfilling that vision. And so the question is, what's the vision for your life? What's the vision for our church? Well, there's some questions we've got to answer before we come to that conclusion. And first of all, I like to say, people say, well, what's the definition of vision? What is it really? Well, I recall what Duke Ellington, that great and famous theologian once said, actually a jazz musician, said about rhythm. He was asked about, what what is the definition of rhythm? He says, well, if you've got it, you don't need no definition. And if you don't have it, ain't no definition going to help. So with that in mind, vision's kind of the same way. It's kind of nebulous in a way because the visions of the Old Testament were actually physical visions and dreams and today, when we're talking about a vision, we're talking about a glimpse, really, of the future. It's the desired outcome of the future. It's where you're going. It's the mental picture of where you're going, what you want, what you believe, spiritually speaking, what God wants you to accomplish in life. Our vision statement here is to share the gospel of Jesus wherever we work, live, work, play, and go, so the sun will not set on the ministry of Cross Life Church. At one time, 10 years ago or so in our ministry, we can say, we could have said that this, this has already come true in our life. We had missionaries enough all over the world that it never, it, every time zone was enough to where the sun never really set on those missionaries and the mission of this church. Now it's not so much because some of those missionaries at key points on the globe had to come back home or have come back home. And so that's our goal all over again. That's our vision for, for us to accomplish that. It really has to do with the Great Commission, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus' last words to the disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is a missionary God. Now, I know what you're thinking you know, in our in our uh, world today, we used to live in a front porch ministry or a front porch society, I should say. In other words, you're walking along, maybe you're a farmer, or maybe you just had a neighborhood. You're walking along, everybody's sitting on the front porch. There were no subdivisions necessarily. They were just acre, two acre, three acre, five acre lots. You're Riding your bicycle down the road, you see somebody on the front porch, you wave to them. They're rocking on the front porch. They invite you to come up. You begin to talk to them, maybe about the gospel. Now we live in a back porch society. People come in. They open up the garage door just in time to get their car through. They close it before they get out of the car in case somebody comes up, you know, and talks to them. And then they go into their house put their gym shorts and T-shirt on, go on the back porch. And they, in their privacy, with their privacy fences, they don't want anyone to bother them. And part of that is, is that in our society today, we are with people all day long. And sometimes we don't want to be with people, except maybe with our family, when we come home from work. So how do we combat that? And what about the COVID crisis? Not only now can we not uh, you know, people are kind of skittish about us even coming to their home. But my goodness, you can't even get in front of somebody without a couple of masks on. And then you have to remain six feet apart. We've taught people how to use this design thing called, called the, uh, the three circles. God's design, our problem, etc. And you have to draw those. And it's, it's made to have a, some sort of physical, something you can look at. And you can't use that. You can't get that close anymore. What about those difficulties? Know this, that our God is a missionary evangelistic God. You'll find out here in just a moment in the book of Genesis, he cried out to Adam, where are you? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, Isaiah to Judah, Daniel to Babylon. We find Paul was sent to the Gentiles. In the gospel of Matthew, he says, go everywhere. In the gospel of Mark, he says, go with me. In the gospel of Luke, he says, go with a promise. And finally, in the gospel of John, he says, go as I have gone. Then in the book of Acts, he says, go in my power. Everywhere, everywhere, in the Bible. The whole Bible is about God reaching down to mankind to save them. The whole gospel is Jesus Christ coming to die on the cross for our sins. It's the message of the first church and it's the message also we'll find out even back in the book of Genesis. So as we open up this book of Genesis, I want you to realize that when you come to a vision You have to, first of all, have a purpose. In fact, Andy Stanley brought this out in his book on visioneering years ago. And he said that every vision starts with a purpose and then you have problems. And then your vision is how to overcome those obstacles. Now, I would agree with that. In probably 80, 90% of the cases, there are some exceptions on visions come a different way. But basically, that's it. You know, if, if you are in a, for example, in an area, and you say I I feel led to start a brand new hospital, but there's ten hospitals maybe right around you, then there's not a problem there. Let me let me show you what I'm, what I mean. In a purpose, for example, Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Nehemiah felt called to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It was in ruin, the walls were down. Now here's the thing, the purpose was for the nation of Israel led by the city of Jerusalem, that was kind of the hub of everything, to really be an example and to glorify God on the earth in front of the Gentiles. They couldn't do that. They were defeated, the walls were down, they were subject to uh, the the openness of, of battle from the outside, they had no walls to defend them. There was a problem there. They could not fulfill their purpose. I, uh, Nehemiah comes along. He goes to the town, the city, and he shows the, the, uh, the people of the city the rubble, the rubble they've been seeing all their life, but they didn't notice it anymore. He says, look at the rubble. Look at the problems that we have. And the solution was the vision. Let us arise and build or rebuild. And we can find this uh, pattern all throughout the Bible, including in the book of Genesis, and I want us to look at that right now. Look at what God's purpose, his design for us was from the beginning. Genesis chapter one, he's already created everything, but he found nothing like him. God created the universe, everything in it, found nothing like him, so he says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the only one, like this, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And then in verse 31, he says, it's all good. Verse 15 of chapter two, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, verse 8. We'll come back to some of these other verses in just a few moments. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said, where are you? What do we see from this? God said, look, I've created everything else, and now I want to create something after my likeness, after my image. He did that, and we picture him now walking in the cool of the garden. What was he doing? He was having a relationship with man. If you were to think to yourself for just a moment, if God would not have known the future, which he did, but if he would not have known the future, his dream would have been to be able to walk among uh, the men in the garden, Adam and Eve and their offspring and their offspring and their offspring and simply have a relationship with us. That's God's original design for us. Now something happened. There was a problem here. What was the problem? Genesis 3, 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did, not, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? You see, this is his, his MO. He starts off by saying, has God really said that? I mean, come on. Do you really think God would say that? Do you think a loving God would maybe say that? Gracious God or a wrathful God? Do you think he would say that? Has God said? This is the MO. Doubt God's word, deny God's word, replace God's word. Notice what he did, and the woman said to the serpent, "You may eat of the tree of the tree, uh, the fruit of the trees in the garden." But God said, "You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden; neither shall you touch it, lest you die." Notice what she did, and the temptation. She says, "You know God's really unreasonable. He says we couldn't even touch it. God never said that. You could touch it all you want. You could juggle with it, play ball with it, but you could not eat it. But she made things harder." To justify what they were both about to do. And I believe Adam was watching nearby. He wanted to do the same thing. But just saying, if Eve does it, I'll do it too. You know, that kind of thing. Notice it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, denying God's word. But God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, replacing God's word. They ate of it. Verse six, their eyes were open. And there God began to walk in the garden and there was a separation between the two. In fact, after this happened, it says in verses 22 and 23 of the same chapter, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground From which he was taken. A separation. The Bible says this. Romans 5.12. Therefore just as sin entered into the world through one man Adam. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. The Bible says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what has happened here? There's a problem. What is the problem? The problem is sin. The problem is we are separated now from God. Therefore, we cannot reign with him. Therefore, we can, it's not our original design. We've lost our purpose in life. So we look and say, what is the purpose of your life? If you don't know what the purpose of your life is, you can't have a vision. Because the problems are never going to come up. The obstacles to reaching your purpose is not going to be there. God says, God says My, your purpose, primary purpose, Your purpose, my purpose is to have a relationship with God, but now an obstacle has come in between us and God. We are separated from Him, and because of that, we see the brokenness all around us. We see broken lives, we see broken homes, broken hearts, hurt. We have something like COVID come along and just upset everything and break our businesses and break our lives. One phone call, think about it, one phone call could ruin and change your life forever we're so fragile. We don't know what's coming next. So fragile. So many things that are just totally out of our control. And there's a lostness there. There's a brokenness there within the heart. This man who wrote to Gordon McDonald for one of his books, he quoted in one of his books, said this, Several years ago, I was at the point of great frustration in my life. Although I had a wonderful wife and three beautiful sons, my career was going badly. I had a few friends, but my oldest son began getting into trouble. He started failing in school. I was suffering from depression. There was a great tension and unhappiness in my life. At that time, I had an opportunity to travel overseas where I stayed to work in a foreign company. This new opportunity was such an excellent one financially and career-wise, that I made it my number one priority in life, forsaking all of the values. I did many wrong things, sinful things, to advance my position and my success. I justified them by saying things were gonna be better for my family because I'm gonna be making more money. Of course, this was intolerable for my wife, and she and my family returned to the US. I was still blind, however, to the problems that were within me. My success, my salary, my career all moved upward. I was caught in a golden cage. This seemed like your life a little bit. He goes on to say his life got so bad that he checked into a hotel for 9 days figuring out what he was going to do. And here's what his it was his conclusion. My only solution was to run and hide, to start in a different place, to sever all connections. Broken world. There's a brokenness there. So there must be a provision there must be a, a solution. And that's how you come back to your purpose. The solution is to plow through, to get through those circumstances, those obstacles in life. And so what happened? Well, we turn back to Genesis. And in chapter 3, verse 15, it says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's talking about the woman and the, and the serpent, the snake. He said, well, we don't know it was a snake. It was a serpent. You know, I... I don't like snakes, really, so I like to believe it's a snake. I have no reason to believe it's not, all right? And so I'm going to put a fear and a separation between you and the snake. How many of you ladies uh, really don't like snakes? All right, many of those on TV raise their hands, I know, and not too many here. All right, so I don't like them, but notice he changes something here. And he says, but, he says, between you and your offspring, your offspring, you shall bruise your head and she shall bruise; he he will bruise his heel. What's he talking about here, man? It's tough to understand. It's called; it's really called something like a prelude to evangelism here. He's saying, okay. On the one hand, the snake's going to crawl on its belly for the rest of eternity, and there's going to be an enmity between you and the woman. But on the other hand, the offspring of the woman will one day crush the head of the devil who has possessed the serpent. That's what he's saying. And we can see this in Colossians 2.13. It says, Jesus nailed, God nailed all of our sins to the cross. And he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan's head was crushed. Now the provision's there. How do we overcome our sin? We overcome our sin by placing our faith and trust In Jesus Christ. Way back in the book of Genesis. We see the pattern of a vision. You've got a purpose. That design is to have a relationship with God. You can't have it. Because of sin in your life. The solution was Jesus Christ came. And died on the cross. For your sins and mine. And so here's God's vision. And that should be part of the vision. And really grasping the real vision. Even in the church. And so how do we grasp it? How do we get it? How do we seize the vision. Well, I'm not going to go over Genesis chapter 3 with the temptation again, but I want you to notice something here that's very insightful, and that is Eve believed the wrong thing. She believed Satan. She believed lies. And, and listen, truth is so important to our life. When we don't operate by the truth, we live in a great, great disadvantage to life. If you don't believe in gravity, it's going to hurt you sooner or later. Anytime you do not believe what is true, it hurts you. And the gospel here is is given to us that God wants to reconcile people to himself. And he said in the New Testament that I have given you the ministry of reconciliation. I have given you the ministry to share this gospel with the rest of the world. So what is going to get our hearts into that? We've got so many things going on. Man, there's a job, there's COVID, there's this, there's that going on in the country, there's election coming up, there's uh, you know, things going on around the world that we have no control over. Man, we're worried, we're fretful. What do you mean evangelize? What does all that mean? Well, it depends on what you believe, isn't it? In fact, there's three things. One is what you believe, then who you are, and what you say. It's sort of like a a, a progression going through. What do you believe? What do you believe? Your beliefs determine your behavior, but also it brings passion as well. You look at the passion that's coming out, even our millennial generation, they're looking for a cause. They're looking for something to do in their life to really make a difference. I mean, after all, if you have a young person, say a six-year-old, and you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Very few of them, I've never heard any of them say, well, you know, I'd like to work in an office and push papers around for the rest of my life, you know. Nobody says that, you know. no, They want to be the next Superman. And they want to be a policeman, a fireman. They want to be a hero in some way because they want to, they want to make a difference. They want to count in this life in some way. And so what do you believe? as I said last week, 17% of the people in America have a biblical worldview. So that's going to change the way you respond to life. That's going to change what you are passionate about in life, what you really believe in life. For example, a biblical worldview would say, this Bible is the word of God. Cover to cover. A biblical worldview says that we are all sinners and separated from God. There's some people would say, no, we're, we're basically good people. You know, like the the politician that said uh, about guns, she said, don't you think if I have a, a gun in my hand, somebody attacks me, maybe in my home and they have a gun and I have a gun. Don't you think if I put that gun down, he would put his gun down too? Now you laugh, but you see, that's a whole world view. And that worldview says, if you just treat people okay, and you encourage people, they'll never hurt you. In fact, we'll just all get along. And the Bible says, Jesus said, that he knew the people's hearts. The Bible says that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, that's what the Bible teaches. And you say, well, I'm not as depraved as I could be. I know a lot of people worse than me. I know that. But just think about, if you were given an ultimate amount of money, no limit, no limit to your power, how would that change your life? And you say, oh, it would change it for the better. I'd do so much good. No, uh, show me someone that, okay, they may be a philanthropist and do well, but very, very, very few people are not changed to the negative when they have all that power and money, very few. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Why why do we have a problem? Because we're sinners and separated from God. It's a natural thing for us to do the wrong thing. And so you believe that. And so what is the solution? Well, you know, I know know one of them. You say, "I I know one of the solutions. Jesus Christ. Man, he's one of the best solutions. You know, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible teaches this. Jesus said about himself. Now, this is the red letter stuff. I'm not, I'm not, the only reason I'm bringing that out because some people say, well, what Jesus said is what really matters, not the rest of the Bible. No, it's all the word of God, every bit of it. But this is the red letter stuff. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. So man, that's so narrow, and it is. And I understand in our world today, Everybody's tolerant. That is, just seems like an intolerant statement. It's narrow. Well, you know, when I, if I go in for surgery, I really would like my surgeon to be narrow. Okay. I don't want him, you know, appendix operation, you slice, oh, it's here. You know, it's here somewhere. You know, it doesn't matter where I cut. You know, just I'll cut over here and cut over here. You know, there's the gizzard. That's not it. There's the liver, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, oh, there, there it is. Isn't that it? You know. Yeah, that's it. You know, so you take out the appendix. No, you want your, your surgeon to be precise. You want him to be narrow. Now, I know people say, well, Jesus is the one of the ways to heaven, but not everybody maybe knows about Jesus, and so it can't be this and it can't be that. And he's one of the ways to heaven. Well, I, I can tell you this. If Jesus Christ is only one of the ways to heaven, I'm not sure we have a God you want to follow. Okay? So why would you say that? Well, let me me ask you this. Do you consider yourself a good parent? A loving parent? I hope you do. Somebody comes to your house and said, you know, COVID's just taken over the world, and it's worse than we we ever thought. And we're looking for someone's blood that is pure, that is a certain type, that has not been infected at all by the virus. And your five-year-old son is the only one in the world with that blood. Wow, you mean my son's going to be part of this cure and save the world? That's right. That's right. "Well, How much blood are you going to need? Well, we're going to need all of it. But it's the only way. It's the only way to cure the world. Now you think about it, we're going to come back tomorrow. So you and your wife pray about it. You cry about it. You're broken hearted about it. And then they come to you the next day and there's more of them. Man, there's a whole room full now these government officials and pharmaceutical company representatives. And and you just say, is there any other way? Is there any other way? And finally one guy spoke up and said, well, yeah, there is. And everybody kind of looks at him like, you know, no, be quiet. No, no, really, there is. Let's be honest with the guy. There's a cure over in Switzerland. They're about to patent it now. There's a plant in Africa, and they're going to make uh, something from that plant. But this is the American cure. It's our pharmaceutical company getting out front. We can be the first, and your son could be a part of it. You say, now wait a minute. What you're saying is I have to give my son's life and give it all for one of the cures? For there to be an American way or your pharmaceutical company is going to win the race? There's no way. In fact, get out of my house. How many would not respond in that way? Now, do you think God came along and said, you know, there's a lot of different ways. I'm going to create a bunch of different ways. And this is the the Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian way. Jesus is going to die on the cross for them, Catholic way, whatever. Jesus is going to die on the cross for them. And then there's this way and this religion's way and this religion's way. And then there's an atheist. We'll, We'll let them go also. And all these other ways to heaven. You wouldn't do that. would you follow a God that was willing to say I'm willing to send my only son to die on the cross when there's any other way to make this happen you see we we picture as being no doors at all or rather several doors just like I've said before you got three doors over here three over here three over here three over here and you think to yourself yeah Jesus is one of those nine doors there was no door we were entrapped in a golden cage no door and God made a door by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. And anyone can receive Him. It's open to all, in every tongue, in every nation. But it's, uh, it's our business to go out and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world so they can have the very best chance at receiving Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the difference between heaven and hell, you will not share your faith. You won't. It's just not worth it to go through that, that trial and, and, and maybe the actual risk of rejection in order to do that when there's so many other ways. But the Bible, if you believe the Bible, the Bible says Jesus is that way. And it's narrow, but it's by the grace of God that we have that opportunity. And so it's what you believe, but it's also who you are. I'm not going to go into this very long. Let me just say this. We are Christians in Christ, but if you are a believer, you're going to want to share what you have, but if there's no joy in your life, then you're probably not going to be apt to share. In other words, somebody might look at your life and say, oh, they really live it. Man, they really have it on the ball. You know, their family's good, everything's good, but deep in your heart, there's a depression there. There's a, lack of joy there and you're sitting across the table and you want to share the gospel but you think how can I tell this person that Jesus is the answer to their life when he hasn't been the answer to me or at least he's not right now. The joy in your life the situation in your life of who you are knowing that you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation. The Bible says a a people of God's own possession and so the Bible says once we receive Jesus into our heart, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and gives us an opportunity to love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. And that is, that is the big advertisement to, for the gospel. But it's not only really that, but it's, it's what we say. Somebody would say, well, how in the world can I say to someone, boy, just look at my life and anything I do is going to lead somebody to the Lord. No, it, it takes the gospel words. It takes an understanding of knowing what the gospel says. Alan Kreider, in one of the chapters in a book, um, said that the early church, this is, this is amazing, the early church grew 40% per decade for 30 decades. Think about that. 300 years, every year, they grew 40%. And he asked the question, how did they do it? They had no TV, they had no uh, movies, they had no internet. In fact... After AD 70, they couldn't even meet outdoors in a meeting. They couldn't invite their friends to come to this big outdoor crusade. Why? Because Nero had started persecuting the church around 70 AD. And if you were caught being a Christian, you could be put to death. And many were. In fact, you could not even invite somebody to your house church. Not unless they were believers. Because you'd be taking a chance of exposing the rest of the believers to Nero. So you couldn't even do that. How did they do that? How did they grow the church? 40% for 30 decades, he said, through personal witnessing. That's how it was. They built relationships with people. He said, in fact, there's, there's two things that were key. Two things. He says, first of all, they knew them. Otherwise, they would not risk sharing their faith with them because they didn't know whether they were a Roman plant or not. Secondly, they were like them but not like them. They were like them in the sense that they lived near them, they worked the same jobs that they worked, maybe did some of the same recreational things, but they were unlike them in how they handled their problems and how they lived. And the opposite of things attracted, now you know that's that's even true in life, Many of you married somebody just the opposite of you. You know, you like to get up in the morning, they like to stay up late at night. You're introverted, they're extroverted. They have brown hair, you have blonde hair. People are just attracted to the opposite many, many times. And we look at somebody and say, they're different than me. Man, they handle that problem different from me. They live different from me. They're not doing this, and, and they're doing that instead. They're going to church for some, for some odd reason or at least watching it over the internet today. Why are they doing what they're doing? The opposites then would begin to attract. And he says, the gospel presentation, God's design is to have fellowship with him. We are sinners separated from God. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, and we must receive him into our heart. And during this COVID crisis that we're in, you can't get close to people. And so we're gonna teach you on the internet, In the next couple of weeks, we're going to come out with this, uh, a three or four session time on how to build relationships and how to share your faith. What to say when you're actually talking to somebody. But then I need to, to close this message out. What's the significance of it? The so what? Well, first of all, it's very essential to others. We're talking about the essential church. If Jesus Christ is the difference between heaven and hell, that's essential. We are in a relationship with God, and God has called us to the ministry of reconciliation. It's a personal thing, but it's not a private, private thing. It's personal to everybody as God works in our life through the same gospel. But we need to be sharing the gospel with other people, and it makes a difference in their life. It made a difference in Mikey's life, who was a police officer here in Oviedo. And you can see her testimony and hear her testimony and watch it on our internet. It made a difference to my friend Harry back in college when he said he was on his way home to his actually his, his girlfriend's parents' home whom he lived with as, a, as she was a teenager, lived with her in the house with her parents, unmarried. Didn't think a thing about it. He's on his way back. She's riding in the car, and he gets this feeling that just comes over him. And he gets home, and he says, you need to stay here. i got to go to the bedroom a minute. He goes into the bedroom. He gets down on his knees and begins to cry. We're talking about a rough guy, tough. He says, I just begin to cry, and I couldn't stop crying. And they would knock on the door. What's wrong? He said, go away, go away. And he said, I was recalling the things that had been taught to me about the gospel and people talking to me, and I gave my heart to Jesus Christ right then. Life was changed. Went on to college and became a minister. I look at another friend, Chuck, at the University of Georgia. The most, I mean, the guy that was, a he's the most ungodly guy in the whole football team. There's only one Christian back then on the team, and he picked on him all the time. Just picked at him all the time. So bad, he was he, he, so drunk one time, he fell out of the back of a truck, gravel all in his, they had to pull gravel out of his back. Didn't even feel the pain. He was on drugs. Showed up in one fall, his sophomore year, right after he was saved, his coach, high school coach had led him to the Lord, desperate to know Christ, desperate for the answers to life. Nobody would have thought Chuck was even interested in the gospel But he was looking for the answers, went to his coach. He says, I know that you're a Christian. Tell me about it. He received Christ. His coach discipled him all summer. He shows up walking down the hall with his Bible on Sunday morning, about ready to go to church. His roommate comes in the other direction, carrying his suitcases as he's reporting for school. He sees Chuck with the Bible, drops his suitcase, and literally fell down on the floor laughing. He thought it was a joke. But this young man's life was changed, and he changed the lives of many people. That whole football team turned upside down and was known for their FCA, known for the people who knew the Lord. If I mentioned some of their names, some of you would have even heard of them. Turned that whole team upside down. It's personal to them. It's personal to the the five people that were sitting in front of me in the living room one time And I just shared with them the gospel just out of memory and a few memory verses and all all five of them received Christ into their heart. It makes a difference to those people when they find not only the answers, but also knowing that if they were to die right then, they'd go to heaven because Jesus Christ lives in their heart. It makes a difference to your life as well. It's essential to your life because it's an opportunity to trust God as you do something that's hard for you. I used to teach my children all the time and I mentioned this to so many people that say, oh, I just don't think I can do something. I don't think I can do something. You know, I quote John F. Kennedy, or Robert Kennedy, it's who I've heard it from. And he said this, we don't do things because they are easy. We do them because they are hard. Because that's what builds character. The joy, the joy that can come in your heart. I've never known such joy as leading someone to Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit of God just coming upon you and a sense that you're doing something so great for God and so great for people. It's that time that you realize the greatest purpose is to lead someone else to Jesus Christ. One writer said the the greatest reason for selfish living is because and miserable living is that we don't have a purpose. But this is the greatest purpose of all. It says for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Finally, it's going to be Glorifying to Him, glorifying to God. You read back in the Book of Genesis, you'll find one young uh, young man by the name of Enoch. Young, he's only three hundred sixty-five years old at the time. Young guy, and he was walking along with God just like Adam was. And the Bible says, and Enoch was no more because God just took him. Was, Enoch, man, we're so close. I think I'll just take you home with me today. It's glorifying to God when we receive the ministry of reconciliation. He said, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, Lord, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is that work? As a church, that work is to reach the world, do our part in reaching the world for Christ. That's all we can do, right? Any problem that comes up in the world, you need to ask yourself the question, okay, but what can I do? What can we do as a church body The miraculous supernatural act of salvation is the greatest thing in the world. Nothing compares to ramifications and the results of that. You know, here in Oviedo, uh, I've read articles. I I know this to be true. I've read articles. You could probably go on the internet and still read those articles about Oviedo being one of the top 10 cities to live in in the entire nation. Did you know that? No joke. I've read those articles. They were put out by the Oviedo Chamber of Commerce, but nevertheless, I'm kidding. Um, No, it was just an article. I've also read that UCF, University of Central Florida, is the largest university in America. I think that's still true. I've also read they're number two in COVID, you know. And so that's kind of on the negative side, the concern side. But what if 10 years from now, 20 years from now, some reporter were to come along and say, I'm going to write an article. Because the Oviedo UCF area is the most evangelized, most God-honoring community in the entire United States. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be? What a, what a vision for our community as we have a vision for the world. What joy that would be set before us. You say, well, I just don't know. I just don't think I can do it. I've got all these things going on in life. I saw saw a little booklet years ago. And this little booklet asked the question, if a soul, okay, it's old-timey language, if a soul was worth $1,000, would you be a better witness? Well, inflation has taken place since then. So let me ask you a question, a very serious one if everyone you led to Jesus Christ God made sure, made this promise to you that he'll make sure you get a $10,000 check in your mailbox for every person you lead to Christ would you learn how to witness, would you be willing to put your life on the line for that now I know a lot of you are very spiritual, and you say, no that would money's not going to motivate me, the rest of you are honest you know, and you're willing to say yeah you know I'm afraid it would and it probably would with me as well. Well, I don't know about me. The rest of the staff, it would. I don't know about me. it motivates all of us. Which shows us where the values are. Because one day this life's going to end. But there's a life that's going to go on for eternity. And Jesus Christ makes the difference in that. And you know, here's the thing to the whole thing. Our mission statement, you know, love, know, trust, follow Jesus... We're all about that on a day-to-day basis, and we're gonna get every, hopefully get everybody to the point of having that real joy in their life that they'll wanna spread it to everyone else. So it all works together. But you know, you have to be impacted by the Lord before you can impact anyone else. And so are you impacted today? Do you believe today? Have you trusted him as your Savior and Lord? With heads bowed and eyes closed, I wanna challenge you today. I want to challenge you to ask God one question as a believer. You know, God, do you want me to learn how to witness, how to relate to people? And God, would you put a fire in my heart, a passion in my heart to actually share Christ and want to share Christ with others? Not a guilt trip, a passion to do it. And then for those of you today that are those people, the people that have never received Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. The people in the auditorium, their heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want to ask you at home to do the same thing. And if you want Jesus to come in to live inside your heart and receive the joy of the Lord, why don't you pray this prayer with me right now as I pray. God, we thank you so much for the vision that God has for us. The purpose is to be with you, to experience you, to know you, to love you, and to feel your love. And even though we have a problem of sin, you have the solution by sending Jesus to Christ to die on the cross for us. So I trust that action today. I trust that you died for me. I invite you into my heart, and I ask you to forgive me Of all my sin. Help me to follow you with all my heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.